0: The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. I love the holiday season, but I feel like it's been forever since I've been able to speak to you. It's been a while since we've had community groups. But uh, nonetheless, as the year gets underway, I'm excited about some of the things that God's doing here among us at Life Journey Church. We've got a, a community group kicking off. We'll talk more about that later on. But it's just so good to see you here this morning. If I've not had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Richard Boyce. I'm one of the elders here at Life Journey Church. And I have to tell you, it's been like four weeks since I've spoken to you. Uh, It's my Christmas gift to all of you. I hope you appreciate it. But uh, over the break, I had enough time to not just think about the message today. This is irritating me. I'm going to move that. But I had extra time to think about other things like me. How many of y'all thought about me this month? No? Okay, just me. All right. Jody thought about me, but it was probably because of something that I said that I shouldn't have or something. But I had a lot of time to think about me, and I found out over the break that sometimes I'm really not a fan of Richard Boyce. Seriously. I have a lot of quirks. All right? Now, I know that you're sitting back there saying, no, no way, not Richard Boyce, but no, seriously, I have some quirks. I don't know, maybe quirk's a bit strong. But, but there are some personality traits that I have that I, I just don't care much for. I'm, I'm a pretty introverted person. All right, and introversion and pastoral ministry don't go hand-in-hand hand very well. And you know what makes it worse? Hanging out with Walt. Where'd he go? And you're only laughing because you know where I'm going with this. Walt and I, we spend a lot of time together, inside a staff meeting, outside a staff meeting. We make hospital visits together. Uh, we enjoy dinner together. Uh, way back in the day, we spent some time in the woods together. I mean, we're just, we're, we're friends. We hang out. But, but you know how Walt is. All right, without fail, every time we go anywhere, Walt knows everybody, or at least somebody, and they know Walt, or at least they pretend to know Walt, but you know what Walt does. When Walt finds somebody, and he's probably not even listening to me right now, that's good, but whenever Walt finds somebody that he knows, what does he do? Grabs their hand, pulls them in, gives them a big old bear hug, a a nice, kind, caring, warm, pastoral, friendly, I care about you hug. And what am I doing? Yo, what's up? (laughs) I mean, come on, y'all know it's true. And it's not because I don't like you, it's because I'm scared of you. I'm an introverted person. I I like hugs, okay? I do. Hugs make me feel warm and fuzzy. They make me happy. They make my day go better. But I'm not by nature a hugger. I wish I was. Some of you are are trying to break me of that, Leela. But you've got your work cut out for you. It's just not who I am. But it's who I'd like to be. And we find that... uh. You know, journeys of introspection often reveal unpleasant landmarks because, let's be honest, the more time we spend looking at ourselves, the more flaws we find, right? Unless you're that narcissistic that you think that nothing's wrong with you, but, but the deeper we look, the more flaws we find. Some of them are surface level. Maybe we don't like the way we look, or, or maybe you were blessed with a nose like some people around here. Uh, or it could be more below the surface. It could be a personality trait, or, or you might not like the way that you think about certain things, or... Or maybe you don't like certain actions and habits you have, either because you think that they're just not beneficial for you, or maybe because you think they're sinful. But but we all have flaws, and the deeper we look, the more we find them. Most of the time we go through life relatively content with ourselves, but sometimes we experience periods of, of depression, maybe uh, turmoil, because we don't think that we're as good as the next guy or... Or perhaps we're disappointed in ourselves because we know through our actions that we're nothing like Jesus and and His people that's kind of important to us, right? But if you're like me, when we find these flaws, when we find these imperfections, when we find these habits or even these sinful actions that we want to be rid of, what do we do? We we try to muster up the courage and the resolution to do better, and, and yet the harder we try to do these things, it seems the harder we fail at trying to do them in the first place. In fact, isn't it odd that the more you fail at something, the more it actually increases the tendency to do that failing thing in the first place? I mean, come on, I know you know. Let's be honest. How many of you have already busted your 2014 New Year's resolution? All right, the, those of you that haven't had your hands up, it's because you're lying, which was probably one of your resolutions to not do that. And so we'll just assume that inwardly you're raising your hand. But, I mean, how does it make you feel? It makes you feel great, Right? Well, if you're like me, when you set a goal and you fail at achieving that goal, I I tend to go back into doing more of what it was that I was not wanting to do in the first place. Like eating, for example. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I'll wake up in the morning determined to eat right for the day. It's a fresh morning, I've got my coffee, I'm going to eat right. And then lunchtime comes around and, well, my resolve just flies out the window. And about 4,000 calories later, I'm feeling mad at myself and disgusted because, ah, dang it, I was going to eat right today. And then supper time rolls around, and what am I thinking? Well, I've already blown it for today, so I might as well finish the bag of Doritos and eat pizza until I hurt, because if I don't, they're going to tempt me tomorrow, and tomorrow I'm going to eat right. <sighs> Fat chance of that. Come on now, I know somebody knows what I'm talking about here. You set out to do something, you fail miserably, and in that failure, you lose so much uh, so much of your resolve to do better that you actually do worse than you did to begin with. And don't get me started on spiritual failure. I know you know what that's like. Alright God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do better. I'm going to start doing this and I'm going to stop doing this and I'm going to start thinking this way and, and I'm going to stop thinking this way and, and oh man, I'm going to do all of this for you God. And, oh, dang it, I messed up again. It's like the harder you try to do something, the worse you fail at trying to do it. And then comes the fear and the guilt. Ah, I messed up, God, and I know that you're mad, and I know you're disappointed, and, and I'm going gonna, gonna to come back in a couple days when I can prove that I can do better, because I can do better. And for about two days, you pat yourself on the back because, hey, I'm doing better. Look at me. And then, boom, out of left field. Sorry, God. I can do better. I'll come back in a couple of days when I can show you that. I mean, it's just a vicious cycle that we like to jump into, isn't it? You slip into that habit of gossip. Oh, God, I can do better. I'm not going to do that again. And then you slip right into it. Or or you let that second glass of wine become a fourth and fifth. or Or you once again, gotten into that, that manner of speaking at the workplace. and uh, I'm not going to talk like that anymore. And, uh, you're talking like that again, or or you hit up the refrigerator to quell your loneliness. You're doing these things that you told God you wouldn't do, or, or maybe you're not doing the things that you told God you would do. Uh, I'm going to read my Bible, and I'm not reading my Bible, and, and I didn't read extra chapters to make up for missing yesterday, and now I'm like a month behind, and I've got to read the entire Bible in like two hours, and Man, I, I didn't go to church like I said I would, and oh, man, they knew that I, weren't there. I wasn't there last week, and well, if I show up tomorrow, then they're just going to remember, hey, you weren't here last time, so I'm just going to stay home, and, and then you haven't been in church in a month, and you're like, well, maybe it's time to look for a different church, because the ones at the other church are going to judge me, and I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Day after day, we kind of try to make these promises that we're going to do better. We're going to start doing the things that we ought to, and we're going to stop doing the things that we ought not. And and then we fail, and with that goes that motivation and desire to try to do better. It's vicious. We trudge from one week to the next trying to figure out, well, how does God really feel about me now? How does Jesus really feel about me when I turn my back on him? And this morning my goal is to answer that question Because I imagine it's one that we are familiar with And I don't think that there are many men in the Bible In a better position to teach us the answer to this question Than our good friend Peter. So this morning is going to be a little bit different because not only are we having to bounce back and forth in the book of Mark, but we're actually going to have to look into Matthew, Luke, and John just to try to put together this big picture. Because what I want us to do is I want us to get inside Peter's head that final night before Jesus goes to the cross and is executed. And so the last time we were in Mark, Jesus had been arrested. He had begun a series of trials that was going to ultimately wind up in his conviction, his false conviction, and his execution. Shortly before that, we found him in the Garden of Gethsemane where he was praying extensively. And even then, he was suffering beneath the the looming wrath. It wasn't even on him yet, but he knew it was coming. And the stress from that caused the capillaries in his body to burst. And so he's sweating blood. So even in the garden, he's under this agony that we've never experienced. But shortly before that, on his way to this prayer spot, Jesus had some troubling words for his followers. And we saw in Mark chapter 14... Verse 27, that Jesus told his followers. He said, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I'm not going to fall away. They might. I'm not. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Now, I don't know if Peter thought through it this deeply, but essentially he called Jesus a liar. Jesus said, you're all going to fall away from me. They're going to take me. You're going to run. It was prophesied hundreds of years ago. It's going to happen. And Peter said, no, Jesus, huh. not me. You need, a better, you need to pick your followers better, Jesus, because if they were all like me, none, none of us would run away because I'm ready to die for you. I'll go to jail. I ain't going to run. They might. But not me, Jesus. I'm better than them. And Jesus, you're wrong. Ah, ah. How would you like to be Peter saying that? You're wrong, Jesus. I know you're the Messiah and the Son of God and everything, but I think that you're just wrong. You don't know me as good as I know me, Jesus. Really, Peter? You're going to deny me tonight several times. Now, interestingly enough, We're going to find that throughout the course of this night, Peter does not just deny Jesus three times. We're going to find, as we look at all of the various perspectives, that Peter denies Jesus no less than six times. Two sets of three, each set punctuated by a rooster crowing. And if you put all the Gospels together, which we're going to, you're going to see that that's how the night plays out. And when you dig deep enough, you're going to find that this makes perfect sense, because at the Last Supper, prior to leaving and going towards the garden, Jesus told Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you, but I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And even at the supper table, Peter's belligerent. Lord, I'm ready to go to prison for you. I'll go to prison with you. I'll die with you. And Jesus told him then, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. That was Jesus' first prediction. The second one was in the garden as we looked at in the book of Mark. Three times Peter would deny him before a rooster crows. Three more times Peter is predicted to deny Jesus before the second rooster crowing. Think you won't deny me, Peter? We'll see, bud. It's going to be a rough night for you. You know, in Peter's defense, I think he believed himself. I really do think that he legit thought that he had the fortitude to stand there with Jesus. He certainly exhibited courageousness in the garden. You remember when Judas led like some thousand soldiers and priests and onlookers into this garden, walked up to Jesus, said a Rabbi, kissed him. They arrested Jesus. That's when Paul, Paul. That's when Peter took out a sword and took a swipe at Malchus, who was the servant of the high priest. And what did he do? He chopped his ear off. I mean, he's not just trying to give. The, it wasn't a flesh wound. I mean, he's trying to kill this guy. He's trying to take his head off. But then something goes weird. Something, something changes in Peter because he was, ready, he was ready to see this thing through. But, but something changes because Jesus said, no, not, not this way, Peter. And then he reaches out and he touches the ear, or what was left of the ear, of this high priest's servant and, and heals it. It was the last miracle Jesus did before the cross, giving this man ears to hear There's some symbolism for you. But something inside Peter changed, and he just couldn't figure out, why are you doing this, Jesus? It wasn't that he doubted that Jesus was who he said he was. He believed Jesus was who he said he was. But I think that what he couldn't figure out is why, if Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God, why is he doing this? Why aren't you fighting, Jesus? I know you're the Messiah. You're going to win, right? Aren't you better? What are you doing? And as the Roman soldiers arrest Jesus and he seems to be willingly going away with his hands tied in front or in back, something changes and that self preservation fight or flight mechanism kicks in. But but the problem is he doesn't really have the option of fighting, does he? Because Jesus said, No, Peter, put away your sword. And so there was really only one option left for Peter, as he watched his entire world crumble, then Jesus be arrested. And that option was to run. So he did. And so here's how Peter's night played out. And we're going to walk through this night because I really think that many of us have not a single night that passes when we lay in our bed and we wonder, ah, what does Jesus really think about me? Because, man, I blew it today. I did that thing that I said I wouldn't. I, I lashed out at my wife, or, or I went to that website, or I went too far with my boyfriend, or I neglected my children, or I, I did this, and, or I didn't do this. And how does Jesus really feel about me? Because... No matter how hard I try, I just can't get my act together. And so we're going to walk through this night. Because I'm, I'm not here to tell you this morning that you're still screwing up. Right, come on, we know that, right? We know we're not perfect. And I'm not here this morning to tell you that the secret is to try harder. Because what happens when you try harder? It's like you fail harder, Right? And so if I'm not here to tell you how you're still messing up because you know you're messing up, and I'm not here to tell you to try harder because trying harder doesn't work, then what in the world is the secret to victory? What is the secret to that holiness that we're pursuing? But what if I told you that the secret to holiness isn't anything about trying harder? So hold on to that thought. We found in John 18 that when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's carried to the palace of Annas, who was one of the high priests. And you know the Jewish system of religion is really messed up because there's actually two high priests in office during this time, and there's only supposed to be one. And so there's some weird tension going on between Annas and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who is also the high priest. But in the meantime, Jesus is going to Annas. He's being followed at a distance by Peter and one other disciple. Now, most scholars believe that this was John. Whoever it was, and we'll just say it was John, evidently was no stranger to the palace and the courtyard area of Annas, and he's able to go in without much reservation. But Peter is left at the door, and so John goes back to the bouncer, who's a little servant girl, and says, let this guy in. He's with me. And so she lets Peter in, and this is what she asked Peter. She says in verse 17, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Now, now get this, it seems that she already knows good and well that John or whoever this other uh, disciple was, was indeed a follower of Jesus, so it wouldn't have been super courageous for Peter to say, yeah, I am one of Jesus' followers, like my friend here, and I'll go to prison with Jesus if I need to. I mean, that wouldn't have taken a whole lot of courage. She already knew that John was a follower, so all he had to do was say, yeah, but what does Peter say? Peter says, I am not. Interesting contrast because one of the last things Jesus said in the garden was, "I am," and Peter says, "I am not a follower of Jesus." That's denial number one. And then he walks over to the fire where some of the temple priests and the soldiers are getting warm. Cause poor Peter doesn't want to be cold, huh? Yeah, Jesus, I'll, I'll I'll die for you and I'll go to jail with you, and I don't even have the courage to tell this servant girl that I'm one of your. What am I doing? You know, we drown in the shame and the guilt of our sin, but I really think that Peter is going to wind up having a pretty big trump card on what we go through. So as we follow John's account, it kind of ends there with, uh, sorry, we don't actually have the verse on screen, but but Jesus is led from Annas to Caiaphas. Peter finds another fire pit and gets comfortable now. Mark tells us in verse 66, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But Peter denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't even understand you. Such question, very confused. Ah, no, that's denial number two. Ah, You ever been there? All right, God, Uh, I know I messed up, but I'm not going to do it again. I'm doing so much better. Ah, I did it again. I feel your pain, Pete. I think we've been there before. What are you doing? John tells us that one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. Now, you want to feel put on the spot. Cut somebody's ear off and then have his family member in your face. Did I not see you in the garden with him? (laughs) Aren't you the clown that cut my relative's ear off? And Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. This is the first rooster crowing that Mark mentions. I don't even know if Peter paid any attention to it, but that's denial number three, punctuated by a rooster crowing. Ah, what am I doing again? Come on, you know what it's like. Day after day, I swear I'm going to do better. I can do this. I cannot do this. And and we find ourselves failing and failing and failing. and, And surely by now, God's got to be done with me, right? I mean, how much more can God take? Mark tells us in verse 69 that shortly after the rooster crowed, the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, Hey, this guy was one of them. I know it. But again... He denied it. <laughs> Number four, you're on a roll, Peter. So Peter leaves that fire, goes out to the forecourt area, and now he's actually able to see Jesus, arms tied, being questioned by Caiaphas. He can see him. He's watching this. And when he is there, Matthew tells us that when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I don't know the man. Buzz off. Stop asking me this. I don't know who he is. Number five, watching Jesus. Like watching him. I don't, I, I don't know that man. But see, by now he's been talking too much because this whole conversation is, is stretched out over a couple of hours. But he's been talking too much and his accent's starting to give him away. He must have sounded like a Virginia boy or something. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that the bystanders by now have picked up on his Galilean accent. Look in verse 70 in Mark's account. Certainly you are one of his. We can tell by your speech. It betrays you. Admit it. We know you're one of his. Why are you still denying it? You're busted, dude. And Peter begins to curse himself and swear. He says, I'll be damned if I know that man. I don't know him. Be cursed if I know him. Denial number six. And before the words are even fully out of his mouth, the sound of a rooster crowing rips through the night. And Luke tells us that at that very moment, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Really, Peter? Really? You'll, you'll, be, cur- you'll be cursed if you know me? Peter, I'm going, I'm going to be cursed on the cross because I love you. And something inside Peter breaks Because he sees Jesus looking at him. He hears the rooster crowing the second time. He thinks back to the predictions of Jesus and he realizes, I have blown it. There is no coming back from this. I wonder if Jesus, I mean, just can you imagine that look between Jesus and Peter when Peter curses himself and says, Let my soul rot in hell if I know the man. And yet, Jesus resolutely, lovingly, persistently goes through the remainder of his trials. Peter breaks down. He weeps. He leaves. And a few hours later, Jesus is found guilty. He's crucified. And he's killed without Peter, who was so on fire for Jesus and said, yeah, if everyone else falls away, not me, Jesus, I can do better than them. I told you it was going to be a long night. You know that feeling you get when you've sinned and you know you've sinned and you've swore up and down, ah, I promise I'm not going to do that and, or I'm going to start doing this. And, and you make these promises to God and then you break them and you wonder whether or not God could possibly love you because of how badly you've messed things up. Peter knows that feeling. You ever failed Jesus? Peter failed Jesus. You ever denied him? Peter did. You got reason to think that Jesus wants nothing more to do with you? Peter did. You got reason to think that God can't love you? Peter did. See, I think that our inability, the fact that we are crippled in our ability to receive grace and love from God is directly tied into this performance culture that we live in. I mean, think about it. It's all around us, right? You work hard, you get paid well. You don't work, you lose your job. Take care of your body, you can go up and down steps without feeling bad. Eat like I do, you can't move. It was certainly found in the covenant of works, right? God said, obey what I have told you and there will be blessings. Disobey and you're going to fill my wrath. I mean, it's all around us. Getting what we deserve is so ingrained into our way of thinking that the idea of grace, of receiving something good that we don't deserve, it offends us. It goes against the grain of everything that we think is right and natural receiving a gift is a foreign concept even at christmas time let's be honest how many of you have ever gotten a surprise gift from somebody that you didn't give a gift for and you don't even feel right taking the gift because you're too busy feeling guilty that you didn't get them something you don't want something for nothing it's not the way we're wired because the way we're wired is busted it's broken grace grace is counterintuitive grace messes the system up grace destroys religion religion says you've got to do better grace says you don't have to do anything religion says I'm a failure grace says I see no failure if anyone has legit reason to think that they have irreparably destroyed their bond with Jesus it's Peter alright can we agree on that if there is anyone that ever has any right to feel that Jesus ought to be done with them it's Peter Peter one of his closest friends, one of his most loyal followers. And at the end of Jesus's life, all Peter could say is, I swear to you on my soul, I don't know that guy. I've got nothing to do with him. Whatever he's done, whatever he's going through, let him do it by himself. You know why I like Peter? Because I'm Peter. You're Peter. We're all Peter. We've all been there no matter how hard we try, no matter how resolute we are, no matter what books we read or conferences we go to or, or sermons we listen to, when we think that we're going to do better and we're going we're to make Jesus happy and finally we're going to be the follower that he's called us to be, and, and what do we do? It's like two minutes after we've got that buzz going, we fail him. We're all Peter. Too often and too many failures, we're left broken and weeping, wondering whether or not Jesus could really really want to be our friend. But you know, this isn't a story about us. It's not even a story about Peter. It's a story about Jesus, who has the ability, no, the delight, the delight in pouring out grace onto people who deserve it least. After the resurrection, we see a beautiful reconciliation between Peter and Jesus. John records this for us in John chapter 21. Now, I don't know if John gives us the full extent of the conversation, but I'm wondering if it may have gone something like this. We've got a video that we're going to watch that might make things click for us a little bit. Grace wrecks everything, doesn't it? See, Peter went on to be one of the foundational elders in the church of Jerusalem. He preached a sermon about Jesus on the day of Pentecost that led to the conversion of some 3,000 souls. He wrote Scripture. Was Peter perfect? No, not by a long shot. But to Jesus, he was. That day on the beach, Peter had a chance to stand eyeball to eyeball with the one that he had repeatedly denied and turned his back on. There was no condemnation from Jesus. No judgment. No chastisement. No anger. No sense of betrayal. Didn't even bring it up. Nothing but unadulterated love and forgiveness. And he gave Peter multiple opportunities to affirm his love. He, He gave Peter a course of action by which he could spend his entire life caring for Jesus' people, but all of that's a response to grace. You know, I'm an inquisitive person. I like to try to figure things out. I I like to ask myself why, and I get mad when I can't get the answer to why. But but while I was putting this message together, I was thinking to myself, why, why would God let this happen? I mean, why didn't God grace Peter with just a little bit more intestinal fortitude? Why not give him just a little bit more courageousness? Why in the world, if God is sovereign and can do what he wants, why would he want Peter to go through this? Why would Jesus want one of his closest friends to experience the betrayal of his Savior? Why let Peter go through this? And I think that Luke unlocks this for us. Because Luke tells us, do you remember what Jesus told Peter during that Last Supper? He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has uh, demanded to have you, that he might totally wreck you, but I've prayed that your faith not fail. And what does Jesus say? And when you have turned again, when you come back, strengthen your brothers. Feed my sheep, Peter. Tell them about my grace. Feed my sheep, Peter. Tell them about my love. Peter, feed my sheep, and tell them about my unconditional forgiveness and acceptance. Tell them they are beloved. Tell them they're forgiven. Peter felled Jesus so that this morning as we gather here, totally aware of our own failures and shortcomings, we can leave here knowing that Jesus doesn't care about it. That his love for us is way greater than sitting back, giving us a grade on a report card for how well we can act. You don't know how hard i felt, Richard. It doesn't matter. Peter felt harder, I can promise you that. But you don't know what I've done. It doesn't matter. The cross paid for it all. We've got no reason to leave here thinking that we are anything other than beloved. You might be sitting here not even a Christ follower. I want you to know that there's grace for you as well. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Will you do that this morning? Are you ready to trust a Savior who is willing to endure what he did on behalf of people like Peter who did what he did? As our band comes forward this morning, there's one more question on my mind that I want to answer for us, maybe one that's on your mind as well, and it goes like this, all right? It's great that grace is greater than my sin, all right? I I get that. It's great that my actions are not going to make God love me more or love me less. I, I, I understand that some days. I get that. But, but the question for me is, well, how do I prevent from falling into the sin that I'm struggling with in the first place? As 2014 gets underway, how do I do better? How do I not go through the denials and the betrayals and the frustrations and the defeats? How, how do I avoid all of that? How do you think Peter did it that morning on the beach? Do you think that for the rest of his life, Peter looked back to the Torah and tried to cherry pick a bunch of do's and don'ts and he decided, well, if I just make the right list, then I can try extra hard. ah, See, trying hard doesn't seem to do any good, does it? Or do you think that the grace that Peter experienced was enough to transform Peter? Peter. What if I told you this morning that the secret to success in your Christian walk isn't about trying harder, but it's about believing better? What if it's not about the way that we act, but rather it's about the way that we think? What if I told you that overcoming the flesh is not found in battling the flesh? Paul tells the Christians in Galatia, he says, if you Walk by the Spirit, if you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, if you live as though you truly are forgiven and loved and accepted and in Christ, you're not going to gratify the desires of the flesh. We think about that. Paul says if you focus on what Jesus has done for you and who you are in Him, you're not even going to think about doing these things because that's not who you are, that's not what you've learned from Christ when we realize that despite our failures, we're still accepted, when we realize that Jesus doesn't judge us based on what he sees, but that we're fully without condemnation, when that becomes the fabric of our existence, that brings victory against the flesh. Jesus came to bring us life. Jesus came to bring us freedom. And as we enter into another year, I want our journey mark to be burned into the very core of our heart. The journey marker is this, the thought that I want you to take on. Seeing Jesus in yourself comes only by seeing Jesus. You follow me there? Because we wanna see more of it, right? We don't wanna experience the ups and downs. We don't wanna fall into that habit or that pattern or that way of thinking or acting that we know is not best for us. We know we've not learned that from Christ. But you're not gonna succeed in getting rid of that by trying to do battle against it. Victory comes by setting your eyes on the one who fought and won that battle for you. You want to do better? That might actually mean doing less. Progression in our Christian walk is a byproduct of seeing Jesus. Not in mustering up the resolve to try harder. You can try. Trying is good, I guess. But when you fail, where does that leave you? If you want to see Jesus in yourself, you're only going to get it by seeing Jesus. And so I would ask in the quietness of your heart that your prayer to God for this year be this Father, I just want to see Jesus. I want the reality of the gospel to be the fire that burns within. Because if that is what you set your mind to, then you're not going to have to worry about the temptation to do otherwise. You're not even going to give it a second thought. The heart that is set on Christ cannot rebel against them. Can't do it. So what are you going to do this year? Are you going to try harder? As one theologian says, the only effort that we ought to make in our Christian walk is the effort to believe better what has been done for us and what is true of us. And that's counterintuitive. That bothers me. All right, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do better kind of guy. Just hearing that that I don't have to do anything other than believe, and through that comes transformation, it sounds weird. It sounds foreign. But we know from personal experience that simply writing out a list and doing our best to do it doesn't cut the mustard. Jesus said it's not about that. I've done that for you. Will you believe that this morning? We're going to pray. Walt and I are going to be here in the front. If you have any questions, If you want to know what it means to really trust Christ, we'd be glad to talk with you. But in this time of response, as we sing a last song to God, I just ask you to ask God to let it be made known to you. Who you are and what he has done for you. So Father, we thank you this morning for your grace. Father, though our flesh would fight against it, we're grateful that grace is sufficient not just for salvation but for life. Father, the things that we think about are the things that move us to action. Our thoughts motivate us. Is it really as simple as simply thinking about your son? Paul says it was. Father, there's a part of our flesh that feels like we've got to perform better. Father, I think that it's truly based on a desire to be more like Christ. And I'm not saying that we ought not desire to be more like Christ, but what if it doesn't come by simply trying? What if it comes by resting? What if it comes by setting our mind on the things of the Spirit? What if it comes by abiding in Jesus and letting fruit be a natural byproduct of that? Father, we want to roll up our sleeves. We want to get to work. We want to figure out what's right, what's wrong and pursue it and, and reject it, but Father, could it really be as simple as living in the reality of the Gospel? Father, I pray that You would continue to change the way that we think. Paul says, be transformed. How? By the renewing of Your mind. By the realization that in Christ You are satisfied. That it's no longer up to us to do anything. We're Your children. You've chosen us. You've adopted us. You have cast our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. And yet, Father, so much of our life is consumed with sin management. When our focus ought to be on, it is finished. So, Father, continue to change us. Stir us to good works. But, Father, let that be a worship. Let that be an outflow of the grace that we're in full awareness of. Fathers, we press into the new year. I pray that you would continue to use Life Journey Church to spread your fame, to spread the message that in Christ is full forgiveness and acceptance. It's not about us. It never was. It's always about you. It's in Christ. Let me pray this morning. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please, do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.